0: Okay, let's pray. Father God, we're approaching your word now, so we ask you to um, help us to understand and grasp the things that Jesus has for us. Lord, everything's important here. And um, as we look at these uh, just few verses, we just pray you give us some uh, lasting insight into our attitude towards the scriptures, Lord. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Galatians 5, we're gonna start there. The, the ancient church, like the modern church, had to deal with all sorts of problems. There were always, there's always somebody coming from uh, one direction or the other direction to challenge what we, we would call the apostolic faith, what the, what the apostles taught. And that happened even during the ministry of the apostles. I mean, there was no glorious golden age in the early church. All you have to do is read 1 Corinthians to know that, right? But people did not... People did not wait for the apostles to leave the scene before they started jumping and uh, trying to confuse or mess up the, the message that they were proclaiming. And they had to deal with sort of two sides, basically. There was the traditional people, the traditionalists, you might call them, and then there were the radical innovators. And they just had the straight truth they were giving that God gave them, but... Um, they had to contend with this all the time. And their traditionalists then, of of course, were those that were, for them, uh, in that time, they were those unwilling to give up on their Jewish distinctives um, to follow Christ, distinctives that uh, God put into the Old Testament, and then they layered on all kinds of other distinctives on top of that, to separate them from the Gentiles. You know, a Jew wouldn't even go under a Gentile's roof. I mean, that wasn't in the Bible, but they added that on. But, you know, the dietary laws and, Customs and different aspects of the ceremonial law, all of that. Um, The traditionalist uh, couldn't let that go. And Paul, wherever he went preaching the gospel, there was a group of Jews who claimed to be Christians. They call them Judaizers now, but uh, Judaizing teachers, if you will, because they're trying to Judaize the gospel. The gospel, of course, comes from Jesus, who is Jewish, right? And uh, all the apostles were Jewish, as far as we know. And uh, that... (coughs) But it's but to hang on to what was old when something new was coming was a, a big problem. They were trying to so they dogged Paul's steps and they tried to lead the churches away from the gospel, the gospel of God's grace, that we're saved by grace through faith alone, and take them back to Moses and even more than Moses, the rabbinical laws, those. Uh, teachings of the rabbis at that time. Number one on their list was circumcision. That was really important because that was the sign of the covenant with Abraham. And they thought, if you're going to follow the Messiah, you had better be circumcised, right? And they also pushed the Old Testament dietary laws and the Sabbath observance and things like that. And it was their creed, it was their doctrine that to have Jesus as the Messiah, if you're a Gentile, if you're like like me, for example, uh, one had to become a Jew, a a yoke fellow of the law is how they put it. And that directly contradicts what God was revealing in the gospel, that you have to come to him on the basis of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Christ paid fully for your sins, and you approach God through his blood, through him. And that was the gospel, but they were adding to that. So here in Galatians chapter 5, Paul This is about as angry as Paul gets, and he's pretty angry, and you can kinda sense it from what he says, but these guys were messing with the church he planted, and it's not because he was vain and it was all about him or anything like that. They were damaging the gospel, they were twisting it. So he says in chapter five, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. That's how serious it is. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. "'but faith, working through love. "'You were running well. "'Who hindered you from obeying the truth? "'This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. "'A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. "'I have confidence in you, in the Lord, "'that you will adopt no other view, "'but the one who is disturbing you "'will bear his judgment, whoever he is. "'But I, brethren, if I preach circumcision, "'why am I still persecuted?' then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. And he actually used a word that sort of suggests going overboard with the circumcision thing. For you are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Very different visions of what it means to be a Christian and what the gospel is. And theirs was so corrupted, he says, if you go that way, you lose Jesus you lose Christ. So you see how serious this error is. These teachers were committed to pressing on the church something that Christ had fulfilled and set aside, which is the law of Moses. So they were choosing, they were choosing the shadow over the reality, uh, the sign instead of the destination, they were committed to the old when God was doing something new. And in this case, it was the worst possible thing, going back to the law, as a means of being right with God. That's why Paul says you can't be, they were seeking to be justified by law. Justified being, means being made right with God. You had, to, you had to be circumcised to be right with God. They were saying that. But that's not true. Jesus is the way to be right with God. So it was a new doctrine, um, something they were, pushing, um, but it was based on old things, but they were following Paul along and pushing these things. So that's one problem. And then on the other problem is the new, new doctrine, right? I mean, the genuinely new doctrine, stuff people were just making up. There's always people that have something new. Always. Something new. They're bored with the old stuff. Right? Something they came up with on their own or something that they're They're teaching um, maybe something they think God told them or some new discovery they found in the Bible that nobody ever noticed before, some new doctrine. This is God's latest truth. And they would say, don't be tied to the old, not in the sense that Paul is saying that Christ fulfilled the old, but they're saying, Paul is old. And that whole gospel thing, it's already old, 20 years old. I got something new for you. That was always coming down the, the pike too, somebody creating some kind of new faith but using Jesus maybe to sell it. I have a word for today, they might say, something like that. Now when you hear language like that today, they might be claiming a new revelation, or they have a prophet that's come along and has new, new things to share, or they might say, this is the product of many years of faithful Bible study to um, this whole new thing I've got to share with you, or the new light of psychology, or, or science, or philosophy, it now explains to us the real meaning of the Gospels. Now we, now we understand because of the light of science or human wisdom or something like that. There's always something like that going on. And it happened to the apostles too. It wasn't, it's not new for us. There's every generation, there's people like that on both sides. People that want to follow law or add rules to be justified with God and people that just have a whole new way, a whole new doctrine a whole new idea about what Jesus' real message is. You can go to the, the goofy religion section in a bookstore, a secular bookstore, and just, well, there's always new things about Christ and the new gospels and the secret gospels and always stuff like that people are selling. There's always somebody that wishes to play with the simple gospel, either retreating from it into something old or advancing beyond it with something New and our task, your task, my task, is to stand firm on the word of God. That's that's what all we're called to do, and to be faithful to that. Um, So let's turn back now to Matthew chapter 13, and we're concluding. We concluded last time the kingdom parables portion of the gospel with some interesting additional words from Jesus and. He, he says something at the end of all of that. So we went through what? Seven kingdom parables. We talked all about the kingdom. We've done that the last month or two. And now if there's this little bit added on here that Jesus says, and it's not a well-known saying of Christ. In fact, I was trying to think if I've ever heard it mentioned in a Bible or read it in a book or um, just talking about the Lord. And I can't remember any time that I have, so somebody must have quoted it. But it, it's, it's not common for people to even think about this saying of Christ. It, and when you're reading, it you tend to skip over it because you got all this great stuff in the kingdom parables and then you come up to this point and you go, huh, wonder what that means. And then you keep moving on. You know, it's just a little hard. It's not really, you don't grasp it right away. So um, you have to think about it. It's a little bit enigmatic. Most people just pass it by. Take some work. If you, if you think about the context, which you should always do, what are the first three rules of interpretation? Context, context, and context, right? That's the first thing you have to do. If you think about it in those terms, it's actually not that hard. But he's setting forth concepts here, uh, you know, in the kingdom parables that radically changed the understanding that the disciples had of God's kingdom. Everybody believed God's kingdom was gonna come crashing in, remake the world, Messiah would rule, and Israel would be the greatest nation on earth. And that's gonna happen, but it didn't happen then, right? So Jesus is explaining in all those parables that that's coming, but first there's gonna be this other time of sowing, sowing the seed, sowing the gospel word and all of that. So um, this comes in that context. So Jesus explained how the kingdom would begin. He explained how it would spread. He explained opposition to it. He explained the extent and the power of the kingdom. He explained the value of the kingdom for eternity and he even pretty strongly hinted at the different phases of the kingdom that would be um, laid out there. So we're, what are we now in? We're in the, the intermediate phase, waiting for the second coming, right? Waiting for the kingdom to come crashing into the world, which it will do someday. So many things are explained in those parables. So Jesus asked this question in verse 51. Have you understood these things? And instead of saying, no, I don't get it, they said yes. So that's good. They were starting to pick up on it. The disciples were getting it. They said yes. So he gives them an opportunity for more detailed understanding if they have questions. This is the time. So have you understood all these things? They said they've got it. So their knowledge is deepened. Jesus obviously has a concern here that those who encounter his teaching should understand it. He wants them especially to do so. And then we have this really interesting verse 52. This is the part that um, people kind of jump over. Jesus said to them, therefore, now that you understand it, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Okay, what exactly does that mean? What's he saying? Don't skip over this. You wanna think about this. Let's start with just a simple context. So the passage is about the disciples who say they understand the kingdom truths that he's presented in the parables, right? Um, They are to know, and they are to know accurately um, about what he's sharing. And suddenly in verse 52, Jesus is talking about scribes not the scribes we see throughout the Gospels who are always hanging out with the Pharisees. They're sort of buddies. In fact, a lot of, some of the Pharisees were scribes. That's why they're often joined together there in Scripture. You don't see the scribes and the Sadducees hanging out very often, but they're, they kind of hang with the Pharisees because the scribes are pretty conservative in their view of things. So these, but Jesus isn't talking about those scribes. What scribes is he talking about? Look at it really carefully in verse 52. Scribes of the kingdom, Right? These are scribes who have become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven. So this is a scribe of his kingdom, a disciple of Jesus. And then he says, every scribe, so we're not talking about one person, but a certain kind of person, the scribe of the kingdom, right? And that would include people that would be contemporaries of the apostles and, and people, every scribe, that would live well beyond them, and even unto our age. There are scribes of the kingdom even today. So who are these people? Well, some would say they're pastors, and some would say they're theologians or uh, scholars or something like that. Some say these are actually Jewish scribes that became followers of Jesus, and that might have included people like that. Um, So the Jewish scholar uh, that became a Christian would have to really reflect on and Transform his thinking in terms of the kingdom parables and everything else that Jesus has been teaching because it's radically different from what they believed and had taught, right? But a scribe, basically, what's a scribe just in himself? Forget the Jewish thing. A scribe in those days was a person that knew God's word. Uh, a scribe is a scholar uh, in a sense that he's literate and um, able and well-versed in God's written revelation. So a scribe in Israel was a, a person that knew the Bible forwards and backwards, almost literally knew it forwards and backwards. He knows the Bible well, he can converse about it intelligently, he can apply it. Um, in a secular context in the ancient world, a scribe was somebody who dealt with documents all the time, who transcribed books for their, whoever owned them or hired them, and um, wrote letters and organized things like that. So, but, but. When Jesus is probably talking about uh, the word scribe in a more Jewish context here, but scribes who opposed Jesus, as many of them did, were tradition-bound interpreters of Moses according to their customs and their rabbinical tradition. So Jewish scribes were experts. They knew the Bible, but they were really experts in the rabbinical laws the Jewish writings. And if you talk to any modern Jew today, it's the same thing. Anybody that's more orthodox. If you say, uh, tell me about your, your most learned men. And, oh, well they know everything about all the rabbis. That's what they'll talk about. The rabbis, what they wrote and what they said. They won't talk so much about the Bible. But of course they, they knew that as well. But Jesus is talking about scribes of the kingdom. So these would be scholars of his kingdom, if you will. Um, people who know well the teachings of the New Testament. And Christ's kingdom and the gospel of salvation and what that meant. They would know the king's words and the words of those that he appointed. Who did he appoint? The apostles, right? He appointed. John to write John and Matthew to write Matthew and those that followed him, his prophets. He gave revelation to them to write those things. He he had to go uh, call up the apostle Paul rather directly. He wasn't planning on being a disciple of the kingdom at all, and God got a hold of him and said, "You're going to be um, an apostle now," and changed his heart and transformed him and appointed him. So the letter we read from Galatians is something for a scribe of the kingdom to care about and study and. Uh, know well, right? So we don't see anybody in the New Testament church with the official position of scribe. There's nobody in the New Testament called a scribe. That title doesn't appear. But clearly those, there were those who copied Scripture, who learned Scripture, who memorized Scripture, who wrote uh, uh, um, accounts of things that went on around the church and they taught the Scripture carefully. So the scribe of the kingdom, let's just define it this way. Any faithful dedicated student of scripture who handles the word of God with care and preserves its message with faithfulness. I'm gonna say that again, sort of. The scribe of the kingdom would be any faithful, dedicated student of scripture who handles with care the word of God and preserves its essential message with faithfulness. Anybody uh, been a a Awana person before? Anybody in here a Awana person? been a cubby or a, a, anything like that, an Awana leader? I was an Awana leader at my old church. If you were an Awana person, you know 2 Timothy 2.15, right? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth, right? That's, that's the Awana verse. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. So Paul is writing young Pastor Timothy and he's saying you've gotta be diligent to show yourself uh, uh, somebody that handles the Word of God as a workman, a craftsman, not making stuff up, but handling it properly, handling, handling accurately the Word of truth. so those are the marching orders of the scribe or anyone who dares to teach the Bible. The whole tenor of this verse, to be diligent before God is a masterful workman, making accurate and straight use of the Word of God is the kind of man Jesus is describing in verse 52 of Matthew thirteen. Jesus just uses different language than Paul, but they're talking about exactly the same thing. And, then, and Jesus uses this really interesting metaphor here. The, the kingdom scribe, the Christian Bible student, the Christian Bible scholar, the, the, the person that follows Jesus and loves his word, he's like what? He's like the head of a household. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's interesting. What marks the head of a household? What's the great thing that person is it bears responsibility isn't it he's the one that has to make sure everything's right that's that's the head of the household he's responsible for the care and the nourishing of others and in life, just think about normal everyday life, the head of the house does whatever he or she can to meet the needs of the family, to make sure all their needs are met. And in those days, in wealthier households, that might include slaves or servants, but to make sure that everybody was taken care of, that had were, there was plenty of food and all of the resources. Obviously, it means resources to feed the family, f- food preservation, food storage, uh, tools, equipment, clothing, uh, all sorts of things. A little bit of extra money maybe if they had it for emergency situations, if they could hang on to some, some of it. All of those resources or treasures contain things that are old and new, right? You hang on to things that are valuable and you seek out what might need to be added for the benefit of the household. That, those It's just a simple idea. It's really a very simple idea. So the Bible student works to arm himself I'm going that's a bad term it's a military term to provide for himself or herself with truth properly understood so that he or she can draw upon it to benefit God's household which is the church of course it's your own family too but the church is the main idea here that's that's what they're doing so they're making sure they have what they need to do that there is of course only benefit to the household as the word of God is properly handled and there is enormous danger when it's mishandled so the scribe has this great responsibility just like the head of a house imagine the head of a household that carelessly leaves spoiled food for the children around, what would you think about that house, head of the household probably call the cops right better get child protective services on that guy. Well, they don't have people like that for Bible teachers, but they need to. (laughs) Bible protective services here. (laughs) I heard you were mishandling scripture the other day, badly affecting the household of God. But you know, a head of a household that has no concern for food preservation or um, even nutrition, Kids, you can have, what do you want for, for dinner tonight? Ice cream, great, that's what we'll have. Uh, those kind of things. Um, that's not a good head of a household. That doesn't work for families, and it doesn't work when somebody's teaching the Bible. You can't give people what they want. You have to give them what they need. Shocking idea. God chooses the content, because it's here, not us. People need, in their souls, they need nutrition. Not all pastries and fluff and things like that. They need it correctly interpreted, texts labored over to find what the author's intent was. They don't need your off-the-cuff, cl- clever comments about it or anything like that, careless handling of the text, the sacred text. What is it that James says in James 3.1? You remember that? Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Wow. He's serious about that. God is serious about that. Those who dare to be householders in God's house, to be heads of households, scribes of the kingdom, are under God's very watchful eye. And we place ourselves under this very high level of scrutiny. We have this incredible obligation to get it right and to labor to get it right. Very serious business. Very serious business. And we take it seriously. So Jesus concludes his remarks with a really interesting detail here. The head of the house, he says, brings forth out of his treasure things both new and old. So like I said, the head of the house knows how to get a hold of what is needed for the family. And among his resources, he, he has things that are new and he has things that are old. He has things that are tried and true that have always worked and he's got them and he's hanging on to those things and he has confidence in those things because they're proven, right? Right? But he also, needs be, be, he also needs to be willing to grow and, and adapt to the new situations his family changes. And if he has to get something new for them, he'll do that, right? So he only cl- if he only clings to what is old and some new situation comes along that requires a new resource and he doesn't bother with it or believe in it or think he needs it, it's going to hurt his family. That's just life, And and that's a picture Jesus is offering for just thinking about these greater realities here. Because we're not talking about a house and food and stuff like that, we're talking about a scribe, right? And the word of God. So these scribes of the kingdom, people who are working with God's Bible, his special revelation, they have this incredible responsibility. So now, think about the Bible for a minute. Do the words old and new come to mind? Yeah, they probably do, right? Because we call the first part of the Bible, the bigger part, the Old Testament, and we call the latter portion the New Testament. That's right. And you know what? Those really aren't arbitrary titles for the two sections of the Bible because there were 400 years that separated them. There were 400 years without any prophets, without any revelation, God wasn't speaking at all. They call them the silent years. That's a lot of years. that's That's like going back to the Mayflower, 400 years. That's a long time. You know, um, for us that would be four hundred years. So that all of that time, and then all of a sudden, there's this burst of prophetic activity. John the Baptist shows up. Everybody regards him as a prophet, the first prophet in four hundred years, and he's pointing to somebody else—Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's pointing to him and there is revelation like there's never been revelation before, the God in human flesh, the embodiment of God's word if you will, the reality, God, the person visiting earth in human form. So we have the Old and the New Testaments. But that's not, the time difference isn't the only difference, it's the content, right? The prophet Jeremiah received a word from God in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. The old, in this case, the Old Testament, predicts the new. So the new isn't just, oh, where did that come from? Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. So this is 700 years before Christ. More like six. With the house of Judah, I will make a new covenant. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more." So there was an old covenant, the law, and there's this new covenant, a covenant of of mercy and forgiveness and a new heart. And of course, we know that this fountain of mercy required that full atonement be made for sin. And that's why the kingdom comes not with a judge, but with a savior king. He will come as a judge someday, but if he'd come as a judge first, uh, it would be a pretty empty kingdom. He first comes as a savior to save people from every language, tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And then he will come and judge the world when he's done doing that. So salvation has to come first, otherwise nobody would survive the judgment. But there's a really terrible problem with the old covenant too. And it's not the covenant itself. It's it's people. Everybody breaks that old covenant. That old covenant... To be right with God by keeping the law? Nobody's right with God by keeping the law because nobody does it. We all break the law and we break it many times and we actually desire to break it. And um, some men wouldn't keep it. That's the problem with it. It's not that the law was bad. The law was holy, righteous, and good, Paul says. But people wouldn't keep it. Sin was so deeply ingrained in human hearts and humanity, and that's true of all of us, too much a part of us, that even though God promised Israel these incredible blessings if they obeyed him, they wouldn't do it. They kept breaking the law. Idolatry, corruption, wickedness. Even after the judgment on the Babylonian captivity, Israel really did stop being idolatrous after they were taken off to Babylon and when they came back, they stopped worshiping idols, but... Internal human corruption was not removed by that return and they just did other things. They twisted God's revelation in other ways. And when you talk about first century Judaism, uh, we talked about it a lot when we were on the Sermon on the Mount, it was an external self-righteous religion based on rabbinical rules to keep. Yes, they didn't worship Molech and chase after Ashtaroth or any of those things anymore, but they didn't know God either. They created a comfortable religion for themselves. Human beings can set up a religious system that is just contents them. Gives them a set of morals, a way to relate to God or the gods, but it's just another manifestation of human sinfulness. It's running away. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees created. It was a religion to satisfy them. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told people whatever I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew five twenty. So you got to be different than that. You got to go. You got to go way beyond them. He called the Pharisees what? what? What was his favorite word for them? Actors. Hypocrites. That's a Greek word. Hypocrisy. We get our word from that. Actors putting on a show for men. They were religious for men to see them as holy or righteous or something. They didn't even really think about God. They didn't know God. But Jesus came to reveal God in person. Personally, the God of forgiveness, the God of restoration, the God of peace, as well as a God who is holy and exalted. And they fought him every step of the way. The Pharisees and the scribes, they fought Jesus every step of the way. To embrace Christ in the new covenant, they would have to forsake so much that was wrong and so much that they had their pride in, and most of them would not do it. So God brought everything new right before their eyes in a person, a person like nobody's ever known before, the most perfect person that ever lived, the most wise person, the most compassionate person, the most holy person, and they wouldn't see it. A scribe that is not open to the newness of what God is doing is in danger of missing the kingdom altogether. That was what was going on back then. The Messiah that came did not fit their expectations. He didn't recognize, um, they didn't recognize this wonderful man he was. And that scribe didn't think the work of Christ might be God working in a way different from what they thought, so they just rejected him. And he attacked their pride and they hated him for that. So in the language of the parable, the the rabbinical scribe of the first century, he brings forth out of his treasure the old and the old. He just doesn't want the new. He He can't handle it. They were tied to the old, locked in a world of religion that excluded someone like Jesus Christ and they excluded him. They killed him. There's really good news though, even uh, after, after Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead and by the preaching of the apostles, there were Pharisees that came to faith in him. We know that from scripture. They professed faith in him, they got baptized along with many others, and there must have been scribes among those that did as well. And some had a hard time, some of them had a hard time sorting out the old and the new. In all their, lives, they, all their lives, they had lived by the old, they taught the old, um, they pressed the old on everybody else, that was their job. Um, turn to Acts chapter 15 real quick. You guys know the story in Acts 15? The Pharisees appear at a church meeting. And they're Christians. And that's where we see them in church. If you know your Bible, you'll remember that Peter... Peter had a really hard time himself with breaking the barrier between Jew and Gentile. He was holding to the same separation that he'd always been taught with regard to Gentiles. And as far as Peter knew, um, his job was to preach, um, well, Jesus had told him to take the word to the whole world, but he was pretty focused on Jews, and uh, that's where his heart was. And God had to push him, he had to push him into accepting Gentiles as brothers in Christ, so remember, God gave Peter, this is Acts chapter 10, God gave Peter a vision of unclean animals, and, and this voice came when he had the vision, unclean animals, a piggy, uh, scallops, uh, all kinds of horrible things you're not supposed to eat when you're a Jew. And, and his voice said, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Remember that, that vision that he had? And he goes, No way! So God is telling him what to do and he's saying, I have never done that. I have never eaten any of those things. I've always been a faithful Jew and gone by the laws of Moses and I have never done that. By no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And then the voice speaks again and says, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy because God is doing something new. And these are clean now. And Peter resists, and the text doesn't go through it each time, but it says it happened three times. God had to tell him three times. And then the doorbell rings. And he goes downstairs and opens the door, and there's some guy standing there. Are you Peter? He says, Yes, I'm Peter. He says, our boss has told you that he'd like you to come to his house. His name is Cornelius. He's a Roman soldier, and he wants you to come and share about Jesus. And I'm exaggerating this story. I mean, I'm shifting it a little bit, but that's what happened. And, and he goes to Cornelius' house and shares the gospel, and the whole household accepts the Lord. And then another amazing thing happens when, when that happens. Pentecost happens a second time. Pentecost is the day when the Holy Spirit fell out of heaven on the apostles and they all spoke in tongues. And that hadn't happened like that since then, but now it happened again. The Holy Spirit falls on these Gentiles in the exact same way he did to the apostles at Pentecost. And that was God's way of showing that Gentiles are equal in the body of Christ with Jews. And that's the testimony that Peter would bear. And so in Acts chapter 10, Peter says, Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we did. And so they baptized them, and great things happened. And that event, what we call the second Pentecost, changed history forever. Because once that happened, it was, God was reaching the Gentiles. So Acts chapter 15, there's, there's this great church council head in Jerusalem. It's the first church council. And they have something very important to discuss. Acts 15, 1. So men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. There it is. They're trying to impose the old on the new. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them should go to Jerusalem. So this is up north, and they're getting this perverse doctrine from people that said they were Christians, and they're saying, you've got to to get these Gentile guys circumcised to be saved, because Paul was now in the evangelization of Gentiles as well. And so the people at the church in Antioch, they say, you better get down there to Jerusalem and get this whole thing straightened out. So they do. Verse three, therefore being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. Everybody was thrilled to hear that the Gentiles were coming to Christ. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But, verse five, some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed, these are Christian Pharisees, stood up saying it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. You cannot be a Christian if you're not a Jew. That was really what they were saying. The old and the new question. There it is, right there. So there were Pharisees in the church. They could not imagine a way of forsaking the old for the new. And that was the beginning, beginning of a great debate in that council. And just like we started this morning with Galatians, the old was paramount in their minds. The people that came to Galatia were, had that idea too. It has to be maintained. The old has to be maintained no matter what else has come later. But remember how in Matthew chapter 12, when we were in Matthew 12, Jesus kept saying, something greater is here. You know, remember when he was talking to them about that? Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the prophets is here, something greater than King Solomon is here, greater sacrifice, greater word, prophet, greater king, and he's talking about himself of course. So the new supersedes the old because it's greater. The old pointed to it like a sign, but the new is the destination, the coming of Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the old. And so some a lot of those things fall away because he, he's what they were pointing to. He's our Sabbath rest. He's the food of God. He's the bread of life. He's the substance of the ideas expressed in the old sacred text, promised and looked forward to. So when the Lord Jesus speaks of the kingdom scribe bringing out of his treasure things new and old, the scribe if he's doing his job right, understands the value of the old, but prioritizes the new. God is working in a new, fresh way, better than the old, not against the old, superseding the old, better than the old. The old was from God as well. There's nothing unholy or wrong with it at all. It was just for a different time and it had a different purpose. And at that Jerusalem council, a decision was made by the whole church to embrace fully the new. Not rejecting the old, but realizing that the new meant that some of it was fulfilled in the Savior and the ceremonies and the signs like circumcision were no longer part of what God required to be reconciled to him. So Peter says at that council in verse eight, Acts 15, eight, and God who knows the heart, he's telling the story about Cornelius. God who knows the heart testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he also did to us and he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way they are also So God is doing a new thing. He's reaching out, embracing the whole world. And that calls for a new way. Well, what about the old? What about the old? Well, there's a great text. Describing the old in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's letter to Timothy. And Timothy's a young pastor. He's facing a challenging ministry, battling false doctrine, unstable people, theological oddities being presented at truth. He had the same stuff Paul always dealt with. New things, people just making up and the old, the old people pushing the Judaistic thing. And, and Paul sends Timothy these words of encouragement. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 13. Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's gonna go on forever. You, however, continue in the things which you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The the anchor and the strength of Timothy's ministry would always be the Bible. All scripture is, the the word literally is God breathed. We've talked about that before. Inspired, God breathed. It's right from him. Continue, continue. Paul says, in the things you have become convinced of. Scripture is the measuring rod for all theories, all ideas, all beliefs, and all practices. Don't let go of what is proven. So the kingdom scribe holds on to the old and brings out the new that was revealed in Christ, but he doesn't invent. Of course, many voices arise to reject the old, just like the Pharisee voices were suspicious about the fullness of the new. Just, just last year, it was last year, I think, um, big, famous, megachurch, evangelical pastor, Andy Stanley, who's the son of Charles Stanley, he, uh, Southern Baptist, you know, preached a whole series, and, and it's very controversial, rightly very controversial, saying that Christians need to be untethered, that was his word, untethered from the Old Testament. And he said, obviously, the Old Testament isn't all true, so don't be bound by it. And uh, if you find embarrassing, shameful things in there you don't want to accept or let people know about, just let them go. You, you can untether yourself from those things. We're better off letting it go than people being offended by things that are in there and rejecting Christ or leaving church because of the things in the Old Testament. It does have some importance, he would say, as as the backstory for the new, but um, we don't have to worry about whether it's true or not or that all these things are right in there or not or anything like that. It's really interesting when a a Christian minister fears the world's understanding so much that he turns away from the old, uh, what was true, what was given by God, God's revealed word. Because, you know, why, why it's so weird is because Jesus loved the Old Testament. What's he quoting all? There's only one authority beyond Jesus himself that he ever acknowledges, and that's the Bible, his Bible, the Old Testament. He loved it, and he points back to it over and over again to explain why he's saying what he's saying. That's his authority. He never quotes a rabbi, but he always quotes scripture. He loved the Old Testament. He never said, can you imagine Jesus saying, you need to be untethered from the law? He just wouldn't say that. He did say he fulfilled it. And he did say you can't put old into new wineskins. God's doing something different, new, doing something new now. Some things have been fulfilled and some things have been superseded. But he never denied it or said it was bad or walked away from it. To the Pharisees, he says, You guys don't understand it. You're You're misreading Moses. But he didn't say Moses was bad. So after the resurrection, at the end of Luke's gospel, he's lecturing his disciples on the Old Testament, Luke 24, 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. He gave a lecture on the Old Testament after the resurrection. That was, his, that was something he had to do right away. Let me tell you more about the law of Moses and the prophets and what they say about me. It's really important. Paul says in Romans 15:4. Whatever was written in earlier times, he's writing this to a church, right? The church in Rome. Whatever things were written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Don't untether yourself from knowing God as he reveals himself in the old. There's treasure there. And a scribe of the kingdom, a careful Bible student, brings forth that treasure. It was all written for you. So listen, whatever we're thinking about, whatever thoughts come into our head, there's only one thing that matters. What does God think about what you're thinking about? What does he say about what you're thinking about? Are you aligning yourself with him? Or are you just doing your own thing? The only place to find out what he thinks about is in the Bible, because that's the only place you're gonna get it. Old and new. If you leave out the old, you're missing a lot. I mean, a lot. The kingdom scribe, we'll call that person the serious Christian Bible student, brings to bear, out of his treasure, old and new truths on any given issue. And his new heart makes him love whatever truth he finds there. He brings Forth the treasure of God's word for the church, for the good of everybody. He looks at the old law, which Paul called holy and righteous and good, and he loves it. He loves the Ten Commandments. He loves what Jesus called the greatest commandment. Where did Jesus get the greatest commandment? From Moses, Deuteronomy 6, right? Shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He loves the wisdom of Proverbs. He loves the Psalms and the worship that he can emulate there. He loves holiness, the, the, the holiness of God, the long suffering of God, the justice of God that's revealed in story after story in the Old Testament. He loves the character of Job and the lesson he learns from his suffering. He loves the passion of the prophets for the truth and their willingness to lay down their lives to speak to power. and. Um, defend God and speak for God no matter what happened to them. And then that scribe looks at the gospel, the new, and he, he embraces the amazing story of God, God's love and redemption found in Christ. The, the word become flesh and dwelling among us. He loves that. He, he accepts personally God's forgiveness with thanksgiving and humbles himself before God. And, and he finds that faith and love are the supreme virtues. And he takes from Jesus how to understand the old law is really an expression of love for one another. And he's humbled by God's grace and this spirit of God transforms the kingdom scribe and the kingdom scribe's treasure is the book that's where he finds all of it the whole book the old and the new and in the end that's what matters because this is the mind of God for us this is what he wants us to know what's Deuteronomy 29 29 say the secret things belong to the Lord there's things you can't know but what he has revealed belongs to us and that's true right through So we need to know it well and love it enough to reject everybody that messes with it. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to be like the wise head of the house, feeding our church family a proper diet of truth. Truth you have revealed in your holy scriptures. Protect us from those that are poor scribes of the kingdom who reject old truth, are discontented with the fullness of what is new, in Christ our Lord in whose name we pray humbly Lord Amen